Our gospel reading this day comes from Matthew, and it's found in the second chapter. Now, after the Magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Oh. Some years ago, I worked in a church in Michigan. And Christmas, as, as Pastor Jerry can surely tell you when he gets back from a few days of time off, Christmas is a stressful and, and uh, taxing time. And so, like Pastor Jerry has this past week, I would take a, a week of uh, time to catch my breath, let's call it, after Christmas had completed. And I had a, a dear man who was semi-retired. His name was David Boone, direct descendant of Daniel Boone, but a very different demeanor. He was the most kind and gentle and sensitive man I think I've ever known. And he would preach for me quite often the Sunday after Christmas, and I would hang out in the back where nobody noticed me. And one end, like Jerry does here, I used to assign all of the themes and all of the biblical texts ahead of time and, and many months in advance. And so one year, I picked the very same text that I read for you this morning. It's, uh, in many Bibles, it has a title. It's called The Slaughter of the Innocents. Not exactly the title you would expect to hear about on Christmas, right? But I assigned that, and, and good Pastor Boone took that assignment and he went and he preached it and when he came back to me afterwards he said you know I I served my own congregation for 33 years it was 33 years in one place amazing man he even I, he literally wrote the book of how to care for a congregation in a long-term pastorate and he said never in my 33 years did I ever preach that text and that says something about Christmas, right? We, we have images of what Christmas must be like. We must gather around the manger. We must gather around the Christ child and 
hear the angels singing and, and see the shepherds bowing and the wise men coming with their gifts. We don't want to see the images of the slaughter of the innocents. And yet, it's been in our lectionary, it's been in our overarching plan for the church for many, many decades. It's just most folks don't want to talk about it. Today we're going to. Let me begin by saying this. If Christmas teaches us anything, anything at all, it's that God came to us as a human being. Yes, Jesus is fully divine, but he's fully a human being, and that's the way he came to us. He came to us just as we come into the world, as a helpless infant. As we sing, it's so tender and mild, right? He comes to us in that manner, and he's born in a place that's intended for farm animals. And he's laid to rest again in a feeding trough. But this child, with all of those circumstances, will become the king of eternity. Make no mistake. Now we know that, but do you think anybody alive at that time, over 2,000 years ago, would believe a story like that? As real? As something other than a a made-up fable? We, of course, have the advantage of knowing how the entire story will play out and, yes, how it will end as we hear part of its beginning this week. I'll I'll confess this. I don't don't know about you, so I'll speak only for myself, but I must say that if I had been alive those 2,000 plus years ago, I would have a hard time believing that this infant, this child who was born to commoners, two people who were pretty much nameless in their own society and born in a nowhere town that was made fun of by most of the locals, I would have a hard time believing that any child born like that would ever become anything like a king at all. But that's just me imagining me back in the circumstances. But I, I, you know, there were people that had different thoughts at that time. If you think about it, Herod obviously believed who this newborn was going to grow up to be. I mean, he was furious, absolutely beside himself, that the Magi had hidden Jesus' whereabouts from him. That's why he ordered the death of all the male little children in the region. He wanted to try to exterminate this one helpless child in order to protect his own power, and he would go to any lengths to get it done. You can say that Joseph and his family ran off to Egypt in order to fulfill a prophecy. I wouldn't argue. The scripture I read for you says precisely that. But it's also clearly true that this ancient couple left their hometown in order to save their only child from being brutally murdered. Prophecy or not, Mary and Joseph had to run and run quickly to save their child's life. And then sometime later, we're not told how much, but sometime later, Herod died. And the Holy Family's return seemed to be a safe prospect. So they went toward Nazareth, and that fulfilled another prophecy. Again, Mary and Joseph were more likely doing what was right for their child than they were to force any ancient prophecy to come true. That probably wasn't foremost in their thought. But what they did enabled that prophecy to, in fact, turn out exactly 
as it had been delivered. Consider this thought. From the very beginning of his life, the powers of this world were trying to kill this person we know as Jesus. From the very beginning. Even before he had performed a single miracle, before he had called any disciples, those who had earthly powers wanted him dead. If you think about it, the Pharisees came very late to the sport of persecuting Jesus. 33 years later, so we think. Within a generation, we'll hear that nearly all of Jesus' followers were also being persecuted and many of them put to death themselves. In the span of his own generation, this child will himself be put to death on a cross. His entire life was to be filled with danger and deceit brought upon him by others. Finally, it will be Jesus' refusal, his utter refusal to escape any longer that brings the final end to his earthly life. And it is that very end that brings about our new beginning. That too fulfills ancient prophecy. Let's go back and just consider some details of this and see how that enlightens the story for us. The angel came to Joseph and told him to go to Egypt. After Herod died, the angel came to Joseph again and told him to go back to Israel. Once Joseph returned and discovered that Herod's son was ruling the area near Bethlehem, he went to Nazareth instead. Again, we hear that all of these things were to fulfill Scripture. It seems as though fulfilling Scripture happens when Jesus is being protected by the heavenly angels or by his family. And it may interest you to note that it was those who were trying to kill Jesus who became the instruments of fulfillment of that prophecy. It was their actions that made things happen the way God intended. I guess you could say it's similar to the circumstances that we might find ourselves in from time to time in our lives where we try to get the better of someone else, but in the process of getting the better of someone else, we've set ourselves up for a fall, right? I've done that, I'm, sh- I'm ashamed to say. We've all been in that circumstance perhaps once or twice where we thought we were better than someone else and turned out proving that the opposite was true. <sighs> Do you notice also that there's no mention of Mary anywhere in the passage I read for you? She's absent from the text. It seems to me that both Mary and Joseph are merely pawns in this strange series of events. Angels tell them what to do, they do it. And and without any discussion or complaint, they simply do it. And then we have Herod and Archelaus, and they seem to be doing what the circumstances are driving them to do as their culture would do it. They don't seem to be thinking people either. They're along for the ride in the story. And then if you turn to Jesus himself, I have a hard time thinking that this baby had any idea what was happening around him. I mean, he is God, but he's an infant too. So that leaves us with a conclusion that that flows from the, the story itself without explicitly being said. And that is, there's a hand from above orchestrating these events. Imagine that. 
God is in charge of every bit of this. Even so, imagine being Joseph caught up in all of this. He may have wondered, why is all of this happening to me? Why? Mary had to wonder precisely the same thing. Neither of these people had done anything wrong. They had done nothing to put their child's life in danger, nor did they do anything to risk their own lives. Do you think they may have ever thought, why is all this chaos and death and danger happening to us? Here's a more familiar way to put that same question. A question all too many of us have had to encounter, many of us this last year. And that question would be like this. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why? After the text I read for you, it occurred to me, I wish I knew what happened to Joseph after this. We hear only one little mention of him after that in the biblical record, and that's when Jesus is 12, and he's thought to be lost, but he's in the temple, and his parents were looking for him, and that's it. Apart from that, we don't know what happened to Jesus, or to Joseph, excuse me. The man just disappears from the biblical scene. We do know that Mary suffered. She suffered terribly by witnessing her firstborn child's death, and that at the hands of a cruel and powerful people. Mary had to endure also Jesus teaching his radical new understanding of God's intentions. And that very teaching caused Mary's fellow Jews to most of them hate Jesus too. Can you imagine being Mary? More than once she must have cried out, Why, God? Why? Mary, like the rest of us, had no crystal ball to see what the future would bring. Even the experience of Jesus' resurrection must have been both confusing and, yes, later comforting. Hear me, hear me without any fear of, of misunderstanding. I believe in the resurrection with all my core and all my might. I believe in the resurrection. But that belief doesn't keep me from feeling sadness when someone dies. The point is that we are not so different from those long-ago parents who were struggling to understand events taking place in their lives, struggling to understand the unexplainable. They were trying to do what was right. But most of the time, it, it must have seemed grossly unfair. They were following the plan that God had laid out for them, and they did not know how it would end. Who knows? You know, if somebody had told them how it was going to end before they started... Joseph and Mary may never have left Egypt. Brothers and sisters, we don't know how our journeys will end either. To be truthful, I've never had an angel visit me and tell me what I should do. I've never had the Joseph experience. If I did, I wonder if I would follow the instructions given if those instructions didn't match my best way of thinking. You know, prideful person I am. But still, God visits us in many ways. And God comes to us often. And we always follow God's instructions, don't we? We follow those instructions when it's part of our plan. 
Sometimes we even follow God's plans when we're not able to see where he is leading us. We have a term for this. We call it, we call it God's call. And a call is not reserved for people who stand here as clergy members. God calls all of us. And following that call has a term too. It's called having faith. I think faith occurs when we give love to our neighbors, even when we aren't truly sure it's best for us or for them. When you give a homeless person $20 for food without knowing it will really be used for food, you are acting in faith. When you offer to help someone with a project without knowing where in the world you're going to find time to follow through with your promise, you're acting faithfully. When you get up and come to church when you really wanted to stay in bed, something many want to do on January 1st, I get it. But when you do that, you are following your faith. Anytime you do God's will without knowing the end result, you are being faithful. We wonder, don't we, why God does things sometimes? We wonder if God is with us sometimes. Mary and Joseph, given their experience, probably wondered such things too. They were, after all, long gone from the earthly scene when the purpose for all the happenings in their lives were even partially understood. But Mary and Joseph had faith, clearly. They did what God wanted them to do, even when it seemed far from what logically would have been their best idea. Knowing what God wants can sometimes be difficult to determine. I get it. But hear this, doing what God wants is even more difficult. As human beings, we are not often willing to make sacrifices that God wishes us to make. I know that's true in my case, all too true. But here's the only way I know to deal with it. Each time, I try a little harder. Try a little harder when I wake up each day to do those things I know God wants of me. Especially those things that I fear. Jesus' parents must have lived in great fear and in great doubt. Yet they were able to overcome their fears and doubts by living lives of faith. That's where I want to be. That's where I pray you want to be and we can be there together, living lives of faith. I want to be stronger in my faith than I am in my doubt. To be honest, I don't know where I stand right now. My faith is stronger than it's ever been. I can say that. And at the same time, doubt and fear are still very much a part of my human makeup. Brothers and sisters, we will never reach the point in our lives when we have as much faith as God wishes us to have, as much faith as Jesus calls us to have. It's very important, though, that we are at least moving in the right direction, that we are taking a journey step by step in faith. So if we have to move from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth to Jerusalem, if that's our path in our faith journeys, so be it. We should avoid being stuck in one place after all because if we are, God's plan for us may be stalled. We may be stuck. We do not know God's plan. No one does. 
Not fully. We cannot. But that, that plan of God's will be fulfilled one way or another. And I pray that you, I pray that you think that's a very good way to live your life. Taking a journey of faith a little bit at a time. And letting God's plan reveal itself as it did so long ago. Merry Christmas to you all. May you all have a blessed faith walk and journey. Amen.